much love. There's no name for what we are. Less than lovers, more than friends. But everything a man should be, nothing ever bends me. It's episode 22, season 3 of Ravage Love, and we're back with some Danielle Steele. Hi, Julie! Hello, Renee. This week, friends, buckle up, because we decided that we were going to target Danielle Steele. We were going to do it. We're going to be peppering in throughout the next seasons uh, just classic, classic authors. So Jackie Collins, Danielle Steele, some Jude Devereaux. We're going to go there. We're going to hit some classics. And this week we had to start with, I mean, Madame Steele. I mean, Madame Steele. How could you not? Mm -hmm. Um, So had you ever read some Danielle Steele before? Well, as you will recall, um, I used to read Danielle Steele poems at the beginning of the show. Uh, 100%. In Laura Rose's voice, in fact. (laughs) That's right. And I considered that until I found out that Danielle Steele wrote an album of of music. So that's what I was singing at the beginning of this episode. But no, other than that, nothing. But I will say I have a humongous collection of Danielle Steele books. And I had to pick the shortest one I owned um because some of them are pretty long she's prolific she is prolific so for folks who don't know here's a little rainbow the more you know moment for you on danielle Steele. so danielle Steele's her actual name she is currently 74 years old and young yes 74 years young and even though she was born in new york she has spent the last few years um living primarily in paris and in fact uh, I was reading in Vogue that she spent all of the pandemic in her French villa home, uh, just thriving. Um, so she is the best-selling living author of the world. And she has written 179 books, which is unfucking wow. believable to me. She sold over 800 million copies. Now, Danielle Steele, she does numbers, okay? Not just uh, in her books, mm-hmm. but in her bedroom. So she's been married five times, and she has nice. nine children. What? <laughs> yeah, I actually knew that about her. I do not know how I knew that about her, but I 100% knew that Danielle Steele has written 179 books and has nine children. But she is like a ballerina. Like she is like a ballerina physique. I have looked the same that I look now since I had a child at 17. Yeah. And that was just one. Like she's petite. She's like Audrey Hepburn. Does she eat tulips? Tell me. uh, 100%. Yeah. She is super petite. And that's a good actual description of her is, yeah, she has like a ballerina's body. Like, yeah. But yet has pushed out nine children. Tragically... Her one son died of an overdose that appears to have perhaps been intentional. And as a result, she does lots of work on mental health, um, suicidal ideation and like suicide prevention work. So that's kind of where the bulk of her philanthropy has been as a result of her son's death. Mm -hmm. Um, She has a 55 room house in San Francisco. 
What? Is there that much space in San Francisco? I just don't understand. It's just so many rooms. <laughs> it's just it's just closets. It's like. just closets that you could rent out to like Silicon Valley tech bros for a million dollars each. But an Airbnb. Yeah. <laughs> but now she resides primarily in Paris. Um, she's worth half a billion dollars. Naturally. And the book that I read this week uh, came out in 2008. But she's been cranking out books since the 80s. And her, you know, the critique is her books are extremely formulaic. Yeah, doink. Like, there's no way you can crank out. Like you said, her books are like four or 500 pages. They're not yeah. novellas. And she's written that many. And her the kind of themes that come up the most in her work are rich ass people with rich ass people problems. Um, the women are not always that particularly strong or independent, um, but she does try to weave in some serious topics. So again, in relation to her own personal life. So a lot of stories of people who are struggling with mental illness or addiction um, people's lives who've been impacted by suicide. So she does try to do a little bit of serious commentary, but it's mostly shrouded in really kind of the cliches of what you would expect from, especially those of us who grew up in the eighties and nineties, like lifestyles of the rich and famous type mm -hmm. romance stuff. So that was definitely the case for my book. Now we've brought this up before, but for folks who are not familiar with Danielle Steele, Every single one of her books has a different author photo. Yeah. I, I'm not going to spoil yours because I'm so pumped for it, but mine was not actually that exciting. So it's just her lounging on a, like, I mean, looking fantastic. Cause she is absolutely a smoke show. Mm -hmm. um, but just like hairs down and loose wearing like a black cardigan or a turtleneck or something, just sitting on a beautiful couch, just kind of like smiling, having a time. Now, my book was called Rogue, and the mm -hmm. cover features a very hunky man wearing uh, a tuxedo, but his uh, bow tie is, like, untied and just kind of hanging loose. And very quickly, if you glance at it, it looks like George St. Pierre. <laughs> <laughs> Which, if you're not familiar, George St. Pierre is one of the greatest mixed martial artists of all time. He's a Canadian icon. He talks like this, okay? So, like, not everyone watches uh, UFC like I do, okay? And I understand that the Venn <laughs> diagram of uh, romance and mixed martial arts, uh, it's a circle <laughs> for me, but not most people, okay? So, perhaps you don't understand the reference there, but I would encourage you to go and check it out because that's what it looks like on the cover of this book, okay? So, this book was written in 2008. It's called Rogue. Let me tell you a story. Also, <laughs> almost... I think all of her books come out in paper or come out in hard copy first. And that might seem like kind of a bizarre thing to focus on, but I cannot emphasize enough how publishers are reticent to publish things in hardcover because a hardcover is like 30 bucks. And this woman is cranking out books that most of us just see on the shelves of a shopper's drug mart, but she is still <laughs> getting dough to make them a hardcover. And I respect it, honestly. So Mine was a hardcover. <laughs> so Blake. Blake is a 46-year-old bachelor, um, billionaire, just like living the Playboy lifestyle. He was retired at 35. He made his money in tech. 
Um, and is basically like a dedicated hedonist. Like he is nice. kind and nice and people are like, oh, that charming little son of a bitch. But he's always, you know, hooking up with some hot model on some boat and he has multiple houses and is like living his life. In contrast to his ex-wife. Now together they have three children. But his ex-wife, Maxine, is a foremost child and youth psychologist with a focus on trauma and suicidal ideation. Wow. Okay. Wonder where that came from. <laughs> and she's 42 years old, so around the same age as him, and she has custody of the three children. And the reason why they broke up was not for a lack of love, but because he was just too much of a playboy and he couldn't settle down and she could never get a hold of him. And she felt like she just was the serious one. And he's like, I'm rich now. Like, you don't need to work. And she's like, but my work is important to me. And he's like, well, so she left him. Um, but they've stayed very good friends. And it's very obvious. I mean, the foreshadowing is a tick tick that they're still very much in love with each other. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, Maxine the psychologist meets Dr. West, who's the GP of one of her patients. And he's initially a real big dick to her. And because I've read enough romance, I know, okay, they're going to fuck. So sure enough, they hit it off eventually. And um, she's like dating him and the kids are not really into it. I, they're all secretly pining for her, their parents to get back together. Um, but she's like, no, no, like your dad is not a serious person. And this, you know, Dr. West takes his job seriously, but is still attentive. And so they're really hitting it off. Meanwhile, old playboy Blake over there is really hitting it off with a hot woman named Arabella. Oh. And Maxine's trying to be chill about it, trying to be happy for him, but is clearly a little bit jealous. And then Dr. West proposes to her. And again, you can sense that she's not a thousand percent in but she's like he's a good choice on paper for me so yes let's get married and her kids are cranky about it her teenagers don't like this guy and it's not clear if they don't like him because he's a piece of shit or they just don't like him because it's parents dating again but she's dealing with this conflict of wanting to be happy with her new engagement but her kids aren't happy meanwhile blake is like gallivanting around the world and has decided he's going to build a dream home in Morocco. So he finds this house in Marrakesh and is doing it up and fixing it up and living his life. And then all of a sudden, there's a horrific earthquake in Morocco. Oh, no. And he calls and says, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. I just, it was really... Uh, it gave me an epiphany and it made me realize what I want to do with my life. There's so many children here that have been orphaned, that have been harmed, and I really want to start a charity. I really want to help them. Maxine, you work with traumatized youth. Can you please come to Morocco? She's like, I'm getting married in a few weeks. And he's like, I promise I'll have you back in time. And even better, I will throw you a splashy, super nice uh, rehearsal dinner before your wedding. She's like, I'm sure Dr. West won't appreciate it, but fuck it let's do it so she goes to morocco and there's clearly tension between them she sees him really changing how witnessing this horrific incident has really changed him made him more serious and then he says to her i want to turn this house that i'm turning that i'm flipping i want to turn it into an orphanage and i really want to dedicate my life to helping children who've been impacted by natural disasters and she is just a shook because she's like oh like, look at you, you're being so serious now. You're taking life seriously. Then she comes back and the doctor is pissed. He's like, why did you run away with your ex-husband? You guys are way too close for me. And she's like, we co-parent. It's better for my children. And he's just like, meh, 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 grumpy about it. Dump him. Well, what does he do? He ends up 
dumping her the yeah. night before their wedding because he's cranky about the rehearsal dinner and then he they want to kind of keep it traditional so he decides he's going to sleep somewhere else the night before the wedding she's cleaning up the dinner her and blake you know had a bit to drink they both pass out on the couch but it's totally innocent like they're both fully dressed they didn't kiss they didn't do anything they just both were like oh, i'm just gonna sit here for a sec and then fell asleep well, Dr. West found out about that and was like, you cheating whore. And she's like, I wasn't cheating. And he's like, well, I don't believe you. And also you shouldn't, I don't want to marry your ex-husband. I want to marry you. And also your children are bratty pieces of shit and I don't want them <gasps> around either. So bye. Yikes. And I shit you not, Renee, this all happens four or five pages before the book ends. <laughs> and yet by the end of the book they decide to go ahead with the wedding and just marry each other I mean yeah <laughs> what the fuck this book is 400 pages long what? 400 <laughs> pages long and 5 pages before the end she throws in this plot twist of like oh and Dr. West is suddenly like a real big piece of shit and uh, it's fine. We're getting married tomorrow. People are showing up for a wedding between Maxine and Dr. West. But why not just fucking throw Blake back in there? Why not just have them get married a second time? The well, end. What about that dude's girlfriend? Oh, Arabella doesn't exist anymore. Bye-bye, Arabella. Bye-bye, Dr. West. Let's be together. Uh, oh. oh, my God. This book well, was bad. You, you can just do what you want, though. I don't disagree. <laughs> and I mean, frankly, she was very clear in saying that if he took his life more seriously, that she would be with him. And so he clearly addressed the thing that she was concerned about. But I just have a real hard time believing that she would do a complete 180 and not take a second to be like, okay, you seem really keen on, you know, doing all this stuff, but how long is that going to last? Right? He's a guy with a short yeah. attention span, always looking for the next thrill. I would have gave him a couple months to make sure he really did care about the philanthropy and was taking it seriously. But no, no, not Maxine. Not a world-renowned psychologist. <laughs> I feel like... Making rash decisions. I feel like it would be worse to lose their deposit than pay for another divorce. I mean, again, look at you. Just crunching the numbers. I, I just... It was extremely repetitive, and yet, like I said, so many pages, and so, like, it just was rushed, and I think she just wanted a happy ending for the sake of it, so she threw it together. I looked up, as I always do, I looked up the uh, Goodreads reviews afterwards, and um, pretty poor, pretty poor, most oh. people arguing what I did, which was way too repetitive on stuff that didn't matter, then way too rushed at the end. Uh, I was expecting spice. No spice. Oh. No spice. So um, vague allusions to lovemaking, for example, but no fucking. So I think I confused Daniel Steele books with like Jackie Collins, um, okay. who I know her books are absolutely filthy. Um, so yeah, so I'm giving it zero to five on the spice. Okay. Uh did not enjoy it and i'm going to pass it over to you now but i'm just going to plant a seed that the reenactment that i'm reading is absolutely batshit and it's so offensive and problematic 
And it's some bizarre, unnecessary subplot that was also extremely rushed and didn't seem to contribute anything to the story. So <laughs> that's Rogue by Danielle Steele. Pass it over to you, Renee. What did you read? Okay. Well, before I get into that, I just have some Danielle Steele fun facts. Um, I wanted to know what Danielle Steele's favorite song was because that's what I was going to uh, read for you this, oh. this afternoon. Um, and I couldn't find anything definitive beyond a Washington Post article from 2015 where she said that her favorite song currently, 2015, was Happy by Pharrell. Oh! Yeah. And that also she writes four novels a year. Did you know that? She writes four. What? Oh, four yeah. Four novels. Yeah. That's like... Yeah. If they're all this like, that's like 2,000 pages, mm-hmm. which is and cuckoo she, banan. Like, I can't yeah. even. I can't even imagine. Um, and she also uses a typewriter. She doesn't use a computer. Can oh, that imagine? I knew. That's so fucked up. And she has written books about and for men. I found oh. out. She has one called Daddy. <laughs> um, and it's about a man whose wife left him with three young children. And he has to cope with being a single father. This is just a picture of like a bar on the ground. Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> and then Winners is about a widowed man bringing up his daughter alone. Ooh. Barf. Yeah. So um, but that's not what I read this week, Julie. Okay. <laughs> also, so, fun fact about Daniel Steele, though. Did you look up her desk? No, I didn't. But you've, t- you've mentioned before that it's <laughs> outstanding. Yeah, Describe so it. she um, she writes in her, I think her writing hours are like 4 a.m. to noon or something, too. Like, she wakes up. Really- oh, books. Yes, she has stacks of the hardcovers, because her oh books come on hardcover. Stacks of her own books, like three or four giant Danielle Steele books that made, are made to look like stacked books. That's her desk with her typewriter on it that she sits at from like 4 a.m. to noon every day writing her books. And oh I fucking respect it. Like, <laughs> I wrote one book and I'm like, can I turn it into a desk? Like, if I wrote 179, <laughs> 100%. Wow. Yeah. You just need to publish yours in hardcover, Julie. Um, Working on it. <laughs> and then just get it translated into for other countries and then stack those. Oh, look at you just working the problem. Okay. I know what's up. Visualize it now, folks. Visualize this woman from 4 a.m. to midnight mm-hmm. on her typewriter, getting someone else to take care of her nine children on mm-hmm. a desk made of her own work. Take it away. <laughs> <laughs> oy, oy, oy. Okay. All right. So, like I said, I have a stack of books. It was it was a toss-up between a book called The Ghost, where on the back cover, her photo is her in this, like, white, loose dress with pearls, and it looks like she's in a haunted house, or what I actually read, which is called The Clone and I. And it's, it's The Clone and I, a high-tech love story. And on the cover, it's got, like, these paper dolls, like, you know, when you, like, cut them and unfold them, and they're all together. But on the back... It's a picture of Danielle Steele with Danielle Steele. <laughs> and one version of Danielle Steele's in this very conservative getup, and the other one is in like a jean jacket, jean combo, but they're white and shiny, and she's got this like silver eyeshadow on. And she just looks like a pimp. And I love it. I love it. And you know what? I loved this book. I loved it. I laughed a lot. Um, 
So I'm going to try and just like give you the Cliff Notes version of this. So <laughs> my book was set, uh, was written in 1998. It's New York. Stephanie is living in Manhattan's east side with her two children, Sam and Charlotte, and her husband of 13 years, Roger. And Stephanie's really happy with her life. She's pretty content. She's like stay-at-home mom. She lives in New York. She's actually like really well off because she inherited a trust fund from her grandfather, which keeps the family really, really comfortable, especially considering her husband, Roger, often loses or quits his jobs because he's bored or he's like, I want to write a screenplay. And Stephanie's like, yeah, all right, well, we're, we're fine financially. So let's, let's do it. I love you. Let's, I'll do what you got to do. So she loves staying home and she's become very, very comfortable in her life. In fact, so comfortable that you might say she's let herself go. You might even describe her as frumpy. And this doesn't occur to her. She doesn't think she has to keep up like putting on the airs since she's been married for 13 years. She's a busy house manager and a mother. She doesn't care how she looks and she shouldn't. She's just like, I just want to exist in my skin comfortably and live my life. But her husband doesn't feel the same way. And so one day while Stephanie is like under the bed trying to grab something that's fallen under there and she's in this old gross flannel nightgown with her titties hanging out because it's all frayed and ripped. Um, she emerges with like blueberries in her teeth and her hair is a mess and she's like just fucking out of it. Um, she's like, hey, her husband Roger comes and she's like, hey baby, what's going on? He's like, I need to talk to you. And she's like, Sure what's up and she's thinking oh he probably quit his job again so maybe we should just like go on a trip somewhere you know to just for you know make sure that he's not bored and instead he says i don't think i love you anymore and she's like what and he's like i don't love you anymore and she's like uh yeah you do and he's like no <laughs> so she's like well what okay like what's what's happening then and he's like well i'm gonna leave you um but i'll stay till after the holidays so um, they have a, they have an apartment that they own in New York that has uh, like four bedrooms. So just to give you a sense of how well off they are. Uh, so he stays in the guest room. So Stephanie's really crushed and like she didn't see it coming. She honestly thought they were happy and content. And, you know, like, yeah, Roger didn't really do anything for her or give her anything or take care of her needs in any way. But that was her role as a wife. Right. And as a mother is to take care of her family. And she was happy. She was comfortable. So, of course, she blames herself and, you know, if she only she had tried to please her man, he might not have fallen out of love with her. She's obviously a disgusting monster. <laughs> but Stephanie goes to therapy and Stephanie gets some Valium. Then she starts getting her nails did and her hair did. And she throws out all of her flannel 90s, except for one in case of emergencies and replaces them with really slutty 90s. And she's just like, OK, I'm going to I'm going to take care of me. I'm going to live my life. And so. In the divorce proceeding, she ends up having to, like, not only give Roger alimony, even though she doesn't work, um, she has to become child support as well, even though he's a weekend dad, which I was like, this is a lie. This isn't true. <laughs> but she's free. She's been to therapy. And she knows, actually, that, you know, she was busy raising his kids and supporting his broke ass and all of his hopes and dreams. And he literally gave her nothing in their 13 years except her beautiful children. So she's hurt, but she's going to be okay. And she's free and she can do whatever she wants. So this comes, this realization comes to her in the summertime. At this point, her um, ex-husband has left her um, and he's living with this woman named Helena, who's like blonde and young and has big old fake titties and is the complete opposite of Steph. 
Um, but you know what? He's living his life. She's happy, whatever. So over the summer, he's taken their kids over to France just for like a vacation um, on haul his fucking alimony, I guess. And um, she's just at home, like living her life. And she's trying to date, but she's just like not finding anybody that she can really connect with. And she's like, men are trash. I don't fucking need this. So she decides, you know, what? I can, I can actually literally do whatever I want. So I'm just going to fly out to France and meet my kids there and fly back with them instead of them having to come back here alone. So she flies out to Paris and has the best fucking time of her life. She's like, oh my God, I'm young. I'm free. She's 41. But you know, she's just living her best life and people are hitting on her because she's hot. But all the French men who hit on her, they make, Daniel still makes a point to say that they eat raw onions, smell like garlic and B.O. (laughs) <laughs> and I think she would probably know because she lives there. But I was like, that's not a, that's not a fair stereotype to put in this book, Danielle. Um, <laughs> but as she's she's living in Paris for a few weeks um, before she has to get her kids, she's out at this little bistro and she meets him. He's tall and he's sexy and he's in a, the same bistro as her. But she's kind of like, OK, yeah, he's hot, but he's probably like all the other men. And at the very least, he's a stinky Frenchman. So... I'm just going to kind of like size him up and I'm going to leave. So she's leaving the bistro. She's heading back to the hotel and he's behind her. And she's like, um, what? I'm not okay with this. And so she kind of stops and ducks out of the alley because she's an American in New York. So if there's a man following you, she knows what's up. She knows. And she can't smell him because he's not a Frenchman. So she's like, something's fucking. Um, so she ducks off the, the path and he continues on. She ends up back at her hotel and he's there. And she's like, what the hell? It turns out he's staying in that hotel too. So she gets into the elevator. They're going up in the elevator and he talks to her and she learns that he's American. He's actually not French at all. He's just vacationing. And she's like, okay, well, you know, still American, but whatever, you know, not interested until the next day. Stephanie is going to take in the sights and sounds of Paris. She's going to go to the Louvre and the Arc de Triomphe and like all those things. And she runs into this guy again in the elevator and he's like, hey, what are you up to today? And she's like, oh, I'm just going to go sightsee. He's like, I'm actually going to the Louvre too. Do you want to go together? And she's like, okay. So we learn his name's Peter. And he's a really nice guy. They end up spending the whole entire day together. They have drinks, they sightsee, they're tourists together. It's a lot of fun. And she learns that he's a scientist, works in Silicon Valley and is into bionics, but she has no idea what bionics are. So he's... They go for a drink the next day. She has to go get her kids soon. And he's like, I have to head back to California. um, But I really like spending time with you. And she's like, oh, cool. Yeah, I'm going to the Hamptons with my kids for a few weeks before school starts. But yeah, it was was great getting to know you. And he's like, do you want to, like, maybe get a drink when we're both in the States? And she's like, "Um, okay, if I'm, yeah, if you're ever in New York. And he's like, sure. So he gives her her drink or his number or she gives him her number and then they part. She gets her kids. They get home. They go out to the Hamptons. While she's in the Hamptons, she gets a call from Peter. And he's like, hey, I'm actually visiting the Hamptons. I'm visiting my friends. I was wondering if you're still here. Um, and since you are, do you want to go get a drink? And she's like, okay. So they go out for a drink. And, um, you know, he starts to spend time with her and her kids. But she's a little leery of that. She's like, I don't really want him to know my kids. And her son really likes him. But her daughter, who's like a teenager, fucking hates him. She's like, this guy's a dork. Look at how he dresses all in like blues and, and khakis and, you know, gray. She's like, he's boring. He's a dork. I don't like him. 
Um, she's like, I especially don't like his Gucci loafers, which I was like, okay, <laughs> whatever. So <laughs> by this point, you know, they've done some necking and it was really great. They have good chemistry. They decide they're going to have sex and they love it. And it's really great. And she's, you know, still expecting for this whole thing to kind of fizzle out. But um, summer's over and Peter's like, you know, Stephanie, like, I really like spending time with you. And I have a lot of business I have to do in New York. So, like, can we keep seeing each other? And she's like, oh, all right. So she starts to feel more and more comfortable with this arrangement that, like, you know, he's pursuing her. He's making this effort. He thinks that she's great. You know, he likes her kids. This is really great. Um and so they're spending all this time together. The kids are going back to school. Um, and then Peter, he's not staying in her guest room, even though she has one in New York. Um, he's staying in the hotel because they want to like have good boundaries and stuff. And he's like, okay, well, I actually have to go back to California for some work. I'm only going to be gone for two weeks, but I have a surprise coming for you. And she's like, okay, whatever. And so he leaves. And then later that day, while she's making supper, there's a knock at the door. And she thinks that's weird that there's just like a random knock at the door and the doorman didn't call up. So she goes to answer the door and there's Peter. Only Peter is dressed outrageously and has a stack of purple alligator luggage. So here's what Peter's wearing. Fluorescent green satin pants, sparkly skin-tight fishnet shirt, a pair of Versace black satin cowboy boots with rhinestone buckles. His hair's all slicked back. He's got different aftershave on. And she's like, it's September. It's not Halloween time yet. And... You know, she's like, she thinks it's hilarious, but she's like just happy that he didn't go to California. She's happy to spend time with him. And the kids in particular, her daughter actually thinks he looks really, really cool. And Peter actually comes in and like is spending like great time with the kids. And even though he was already, it's just like a, he's like one of them and he's playing and they're having a good time. And she's just like, wow, OK, well, it's, I'm so happy you're here. You know, what a fun, a fun surprise. And he's like, actually, I am the surprise. And he's, she's like, yeah, because you didn't go to California. He's like, no, no, Peter's in California. I'm his clone. What? She's like, she's like, what do you mean you're his clone? She's, he's like, oh, well, they finally figured out all the kinks. It's taken about three years, but this is the final version of the clone. I'm Peter's clone. I am like a combination of organic and bionic material. So like part of me is like robotic. Um, and like, that's who I am. And my name's Paul, last name clone with a K. Um and I, Peter sent me here to keep you and your kids entertained while he's in California. And she's like, okay, whatever. So she obviously doesn't believe him, but is like, maybe it's a sex thing. Like, maybe he, <laughs> he has this fun side to him that I didn't see because he, he seems so conservative on the outside. So they end up banging. And it's really awesome because he can do sex flips because he's bionic. <laughs> he can do... He can do a double flip, a triple flip, and a quadruple flip, but because she's old, she ends up hurting herself a bunch of times. Um, but these flips get brought up all the time in the book, like constantly, like, oh, we're going to do the double flip tonight. It's like, okay. <laughs> um, so she's, so they bang it out, and he does these flips with her on his dick, and she's just, but they don't, that's not how Daniel still writes it. It's like, we're still together when we're up in the air. And I was like, oh. And so she's just like, wow, that was really great. I had, that was awesome. And then she's just feeling like on top of the world until Peter calls while she's lying next to this Peter. And he's like, hey, how'd you like my surprise? And she's like, why, how are you doing this right now if you're lying right next to me? And he's like, what do you mean lying right next to you? And she's like, well, we just, we just fucked. And he's like, you just had sex with Paul. You're not supposed to have sex with Paul. He's just there to entertain you. And he's like, uh okay but okay it's all right because because paul's an extension of me it's all right just like i don't want to be jealous so like just you know maybe he's there to entertain you and she's like 
she starts to unravel mentally. She's like, what do you mean? Because one, she didn't know what bionics were. Two, bionics really aren't associated with cloning, frankly. I think in 1998, we maybe had Dolly the sheep and like that was it. Now we have little brains that are growing eyes, but like still not people. But Peter has perfected it, I suppose. So Peter is away for two weeks and Paul spends those two weeks with Steph and her kids and he stays in the guest room. And the kids fucking love him because not only is he constantly wearing these crazy getups, he's taking them out and, you know, having like a good time. And Steph likes him because he's a fucking monster in the sack. Um, And at one point he even rents a limo with a hot tub on the back, which I didn't think was real, but it is in this story. (laughs) So it's just like this. He's this complete opposite of this other guy. You know, he's just so much fun. And Paul actually drinks a lot of bourbon because it's good for his robot parts or something. But I don't know. So two weeks has gone by and Paul has to leave because Peter's coming back. And Paul is really kind of like sad about it. He realizes like he loves, he really likes spending time with Stephanie. He loves her a lot and she loves him too. And she's like, yeah, well, this has been really weird, but you know, I, I like spending time with you. So Peter comes back and Paul is like back at the shop or whatever, getting his wires fixed. Um, and the kids immediately notice the difference because one, he's not wearing like LeMay or anything um <laughs> but they realize he's born again but he he's he's growing closer to them both and you know he's putting in the time he's putting in the effort he really spending time with them he develops like a particularly strong bond with with her son um and Steph's surprised that like actually she's still really happy about Peter being there because when she's with Paul she loves Paul but when she's with Peter she loves Peter so that's pretty neat. So as time goes on, um, we've kind of learned that like Peter has a big, huge fear of commitment because he was like an orphan and um, he has been married, but he divorced. And so he's just scared to like commit to that and lose people again. So Stephanie's trying to like kind of accept that like she's probably never going to get married again. And in fact, Peter may never actually truly be in love with her, but Paul is. And November comes around and Peter has to leave again for more business and paul shows up and paul doesn't show up unless peter calls him but in this case paul just showed up on his own peter never called him and steph is really surprised but ends up being really really happy about it and so she's really enjoying the time together but she's realizing that like she can't be with both these people and she wants to be happy with peter because peter's like a real man right like pinocchio like he wants to be a real boy peter's the real boy and paul is not and paul's also like a lot you know she's already got two kids and she's like i don't need a kid man um but paul's like look i love you and i want to be with you and you know peter's he he cares about you but he's never going to love you the way that i will and he's never going to want to marry you and he gives her this big honking like ruby ring that's got like the rubies cut into a heart and it's humongous and i was like that if that's not peak 90s like i don't know what is 100 percent, yeah <laughs> i was like i want that <laughs> uh, so she's really happy and she's but she's really sad and she's like you know i'm she's starting to feel really confused because she's kind of recognizing the big picture that like yeah like she has this marathon love making with this clone robot but she really likes Peter and Peter makes her feel like really authentic. Like it's like an authentic relationship and she might be okay with never wanting to be with him. But the situation with this clone is too, is too confusing. So she tells the clone and she's like, I'm actually going to break up with Peter 
And I know that means I'm never going to see you again, but I can't live like this. It's confusing. It's weird. I don't like it. So right before Christmas, Peter comes home and Steph is depressed and he notices it. And he's like, oh my God, like, are you, do you miss Paul? Is this because you are in love with Paul? And then he's like, what's up with the ring? And he's like, oh my God, did he propose to you? Like, what's going on? I don't understand. And he gets really, really mad. And he just like takes off and he calls and he's like, I need to just get out of here and clear my head for a bit, but I will be back in a few days. And so she's just like, oh my God, like, this is ridiculous. Like, I love this man, but he did this. This is his fault. This is not my fault. I did nothing wrong here. He sent me a fucking clone of himself who I'm having sex with and it's fucking me up. But like, he did this. So she's kind of like found her backbone, which I think is really great. Mm-hmm. Um, And she's just like mad at him, but she's also like sad about the situation. It's too much stress. She's decided she has to end this. And then there's a knock at the door. And she's like, okay, fine. And who's there? But it's Paul. But Paul looks different this time. Paul is actually decked head to toe in like red. So like red vinyl and red leather and red cowboy boots. And he has a new set of luggage. It's like black velvet luggage with his initials and diamonds. And he looks totally different. And she's just like, ugh. And he's way more obnoxious. She's like, oh, I hate this guy. Because Paul was never really obnoxious. So she thought maybe when he was at the shop, he had some changes done um, while they were like, upgrading him or something and so he goes to the liquor cabinet where he would normally grab the bourbon um but he starts grabbing vodka which is not what he drinks but he starts like just pounding it back and he starts bad mouthing peter and steph is like you need to get the fuck out like i am not interested in this i don't want to i don't like how you're acting i don't like how, how you're behaving this is not the paul that i know i don't like you um i was like and i'm in love with peter even though he doesn't love me and i don't want you here and paul's like well i have nowhere to go until monday because of the shop being closed and she's like we'll go stay in a hotel he's like just let me stay here and she's like no like you have to you have to sleep on the floor then he's like no it's bad for my wiring so he basically like is just pestering her and pestering her until finally she's like fine you can stay but like don't fucking touch me like i'm i do not want this i'm not happy you're here but i still care about you and i don't want you to have to just like go be on the street tonight for whatever reason even though he has like a jag like i don't know um so she makes it very obvious they're not going to smash. She goes to bed with like a big nightgown and a house coat on and he's there and he like takes off his like gold G string and he's just like, hey, and she's like, no, I'm not into it. And then but he keeps pestering her. And so finally she gives in and then they start making love and she's like, but it's so beautiful. And then he's about to do some of the sex flips, but they end up crashing <laughs> into like chairs and shit. And she's like, oh, my God, what the fuck? And then. <laughs> he reveals it was actually me peter all along <laughs> so he, he like pretended to be paul so that he could see if she like was really in love with paul or something which i was like you can't parent trap your girlfriend like that <laughs> pretending to be a fucking clone like this isn't you're not tia and tamara like this is unethical um and she's like okay well where's paul and he's like oh he's disassembled in the shop and they live happily ever after <laughs> what yeah wowzers but this book was a lot of fun okay it was a lot of fun it really was um and every time you meet paul he has a different outfit and danielle Steele goes to great lengths to describe all oh of them. you love that love that oh i loved it and you know what the book they don't like she doesn't mention what they're doing in the bedroom right like it's okay. not like 
Like he slipped his bionic dick into her <laughs> velvet pussy. Like none of that happened. Um, he does say that, you know, they can make his dick bigger and smaller in the lab. And he's mm. very cheeky and she becomes very cheeky with him. And so it was, it was like PG-13. <laughs> they did. She did say breast in it. Oh, okay. like he, he, he was going to kiss her breast. And she was like, no, um, no penis, no rod, no pussy, no folds, no none of that. They definitely didn't have butt sex. So, but <laughs> he had the acrobatic ability to do flips, sex flips, sex do, flips. Yeah, flips with a with a forty one year old woman on his penis. So, so is that what you're going to read us? I'm not. No, <laughs> I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna read where. Um, she has uh, had sex with him or she's having sex with him or something. And uh, maybe they do have a flip in this scene. But then, but then, yeah, she gets the call from Peter. So imagine this like 90s style. So there's fuchsia, there's teal, there's, you know, zigzags on white. And she probably has something with a heart pattern or glitter in it. Um, here we go. <laughs> he locked the door quietly, and as he slipped off the ghastly green pants, I almost felt as though I recognized him again, until I saw the gold lame jockeys he was wearing, if you could call them jockeys. It looked more like a speedo, and the gold was more than amazing. What is that? I asked, laughing finally. He had taken the whole charade to the nth degree, and in a way, I almost had to admire him for it. It was crazy, certainly, but maybe it was funny after all. You had to hand it to him for being creative. It's a G-string, he explained, as I suddenly roared with laughter. I'm not sure if it was the G-string or the champagne, but the whole thing suddenly seemed hysterically funny. I didn't think you had it in you to do this, I said, as tears rolled down my cheeks while I laughed. You have a wicked sense of humor. I always thought you were so conservative. In a funny way, I liked it. It had been an insane evening, but as he slipped out of the G-string and tossed it in the air, I grinned at him and found him more irresistible than ever. You are amazing. He took off my dressing gown, then lit the candles, poured me a last glass of champagne, and proved to me that he was the man I knew and loved, and then some. He was more romantic, more loving, more sensual than I had ever known him, and did things to me that I only read about or dreamed. It was as though the crazy game he had played with me all night had unleashed something wild in him that he couldn't have allowed himself otherwise. But as we lay in each other's arms afterwards, I had no objections. It had been better than ever before, and I felt very free now. What did you say your name was, I teased, smiling sleepily at him. Paul, he whispered, and he kissed me again, and the phone rang. I love you, I whispered back, and reached for the phone before I could wake the children. It was nearly one o'clock in the morning. How did you like my surprise? A familiar voice asked. As I looked around in confusion, it was Peter. But it couldn't be. He was in bed next to me, running a finger lazily down my spine as I listened. Is he behaving himself? Don't let him get too outrageous, Steph, or I'll get jealous. My, my eyes opened wide as I listened to the voice on the phone. It was right out of the twilight zone as I turned to look at Peter to make sure he was still there with me. But the voice on the phone was identical. I, need, I knew it too well unless it was some crazed but clever mechanical recording, but how could that be? Who is this? I asked, my voice a croak in my throat. It's Peter. Isn't the clone there with you? I looked at Paul then and knew it was all true. 
Peter was in California and Paul was in my bed, had been making love to me as no one had ever had before, and had been telling me the truth all evening about not being Peter. But if he wasn't Peter, who was he? The room spun around as I listened to him, and I looked at Paul, and unable to withstand any more, I closed my eyes and fainted. That's a clone and I with Danielle Steele. <laughs> awesome. Wow. That was, was a lot a, of fun. That was, yeah, and it, very different from what. Okay, so what I'm about to read you is so <laughs> offensive. Okay. Okay, so. What I, year was this? 2008, you said? 2008. So, like, oh okay. there's no excuse for this. So, important context is not only is this 400-page book rushed in the last 10 pages, but they also randomly insert this subplot that basically begins and ends with what I'm about to redo. Like, it's so wacky, so out of the blue, I don't understand what her rationale was. But (laughs) she has a nanny, and she is having a chat with her nanny and Charles, who is Dr. West. Okay? Okay. And the nanny's name is Zelda. Okay. Yes. Okay. <laughs> oh my fucking god. Okay. I I've been doing a lot of thinking. Zelda said, twisting a dish towel in her hands. You guys are growing up, she said, looking at the children, and you're getting married, looking at Maxine. And I just feel like I need something more in my life too. I'm not getting any younger, and I don't think my life is going to change anymore. She smiled lopsidedly. I guess Prince Charming lost my address, so I've decided I want a baby. And if that doesn't work for you guys, I understand and I'll leave. But I've made up my mind. For a long moment, they all stared at her, stunned. Maxine wondered for an instant if she had sneaked off to a sperm bank and gotten pregnant. It sounded like it to her. Are you pregnant? Maxine asked in a choked voice. The children said nothing, nor did Charles. No, I wish I were, Zelda answered with a rueful smile. That would be great. I thought about it, but the last time you and I talked about it, Max, I told you I've been loving other people's kids all my life. I have no problem with that, so why have morning sickness and get fat? And this way I can keep working. I'll have to. Kids aren't cheap, she said, and smiled at them. I went to see a lawyer about adopting. I've seen him four times. A social worker came to do a home study here. I had the physical, and I've been approved. And through all of that, she hadn't said a word to Maxine. When are you thinking about doing this? Maxine asked, holding her breath. She was not ready to have a baby in the house right now, or maybe ever. This was a lot to swallow, with a new husband moving in too. It could take up to two years, Zelda said, as Maxine breathed again. If I hold out for a designer baby. (gasps) A designer baby? Maxine asked, looking blank. She was still the only one doing the talking. The others were too stunned. White, blue-eyed, healthy, both parents Harvard grads who decided that a baby doesn't work with their lifestyle. No alcohol or drugs, upper middle class, that can take a long time. Generally these days, those girls don't get pregnant in the first place, or they have abortions, or they keep their babies. Babies like that are pretty rare. Two years is optimistic, particularly for an unmarried, middle-aged woman like me, working class. The designer babies go to people like you. She glanced at Maxine and Charles, and Maxine could see Charles shudder and shake his head. No, thank you, he said with a smile. Not for me or us, he smiled at Maxine. He didn't really care if Zelda was planning to adopt a baby in two years, whatever kind it was, designer or otherwise. It was definitely not his problem. He was relieved at that. So you think two years from now, Zelly? Maxine asked, hopefully. By then, Sam would be eight, Jack and Daphne in high school at 14 and 15, and she could worry about it then. 
No, I don't think I even have a shot at a baby like that. I considered international adoption and I looked into it, but there are too many unknowns and it's too expensive for me. I can't go sit in Russia or China for three months waiting for them to give me some random three-year-old from an orphanage who might have all kinds of damage that I only figure out later. They don't even let you pick your baby. They pick it for you. And most of them are three or four years old. I want a baby, a newborn if possible, that no one else has screwed up. Except in the womb, Maxine warned her. You have to be very careful, you know, what you're getting, Zelly, and that there were no drugs or alcohol used during the pregnancy. Zelda looked away for a minute. That's kind of my point, Zelda said, looking back at her again. My best shot is somewhat high-risk baby. Not a special needs one like spina bifida or downs or anything. I don't think I could handle that. But a relatively normal kid from a girl who might have done some drugs or had a few beers while she was pregnant. She didn't look friend. She didn't look frightened at the prospect, but her employer did. Very. I think that's a big mistake, Maxine said firmly. You have no idea what kind of problems you'd be getting into, particularly with a mother who did drugs. I see the results of that in my office all the time, and a lot of the kids I see were adopted and had drug-addicted biological parents. Those things are genetic, and the effects can be pretty scary later on. I'm willing to take that on, Wilda. Zelda said, looking her in the eye. In fact, she took a deep breath. I just did. What do you mean? Maxine frowned at her as Zelda went on, and now Charles was paying attention too, and so were the kids. You could hear a pin drop in the kitchen as Zelda spoke. There's a baby coming up. The mother is 15 and was homeless for part of her pregnancy. She did drugs in the first semester, but she's clean now. The father's in jail for dealing drugs in Grand Theft Auto. He's 19, and he's not interested in the baby or the girl, so she's willing to sign off. He already did, and that's a big deal too. Her parents won't let her keep the baby, they have no money, and she's a sweet kid. I met her yesterday. Maxine realized that explained the suit and high heels Zelda had been wearing the day before. She's willing to give me her baby. All she wants are photographs once a year. She doesn't want to see it, which is great, so she's not going to pester me or upset the baby. Three couples have already passed on this, so if I want him, he's mine. It's a boy, she said with tears rolling down her cheeks and a smile that broke Maxine's heart. She couldn't even imagine wanting a baby to be that much to take so much risk and take someone's child who might be damaged for life. She oh got God. up and put her arms across Zelly and hugged her. Oh, Zelly, I think that's a beautiful thing you want to do, but you can't take on a baby like that. You have no idea what you're getting into. You just can't do that. I can and I am, she said stubbornly, and Maxine could see she meant it. When, Charles asked, he had gotten the gist and it sounded disastrous to him. Zelly took a breath. The baby is due this weekend. Are you kidding? Maxine nearly shrieked and the kids looked stunned too. Now, like in a few days, what are you going to do? I'm going to love him for the rest of my life. I shall name him James. Jimmy. Maxine suddenly felt sick. This couldn't be happening to them, but it was. I don't expect you to back me in this, and I hate to do this on such short notice. I thought it would take me a lot longer, like a year or two, but they called me about this baby yesterday, and I said yesterday, so I had to tell you. I'm going to keep reading just because it it's... It gets yeah. worse. It gets worse. Tell and you me, can't, I need to hear it all. <laughs> oh, God. They told you about this baby yesterday because no one else wants it, Charles said coldly. <gasps> oh, my God. This is a very foolish thing to do. I think it's meant to be, Zelly said wistfully, and Maxine wanted to cry. It sounded like a huge mistake to her, but who was she would decide other people's lives? She shouldn't have done it, but she had three healthy kids, and who knew what she would do in Zelly's position? It was a very loving thing to do, even if a little crazy and very high risk. She was so brave. If you want me to leave now, I will, she said. I can't do anything else. I can't for you, force you to let me have the baby here. If you let me and want me to stay, I will, and we can see how it works for us. But if you want me to go, I'll make other arrangements and leave in a few days. I'll have to find a place to live pretty quickly since the baby could be born over the weekend. 
Oh my God, Charles said and got up from the table looking pointedly at Maxine. Zelie, Maxine said quietly, we'll work it out. As she said it, all three of her children cheered in unison and jumped to hug Zelie. We're having a baby, Sam shouted, delighted. It's a boy. Thank you, she whispered to Maxine. Let's see how it goes, Maxine said weakly. She had her children's answer instantly, but she had Charles to deal with too. All we can do is try and hope it works out. If it doesn't, we'll talk about it. How much mess can a baby make? As she said it, Zelda wrapped her arms around Maxine's neck and hugged her so tightly Maxine could hardly breathe. Thank you, thank you, she said. This is all I've ever wanted, a baby of my own. You're sure, Maxine said seriously? You can still hold out for a baby that's not high risk. Oh my god. I don't want to wait, she said staunchly. I want him. That could be a mistake. It won't be. Okay. Okay, I have to read you this next part because it's... Give it, give it. Out of control. Okay, so I'm going to skip a little bit. Um... Charles storms out of the room. Maxine goes and finds him and he goes, are you insane? He spat at her. Are you crazy? You're going to take a crack baby into our home? Because you know that's what it is. No one in their right mind would want an infant with that profile. And the poor woman is so desperate she'll take anything. And now it's going to be living with you and with me, he added. How dare you make a decision like that without asking me first? He was shaking with rage and Maxine didn't completely blame him. She wasn't thrilled either, but they loved Zelly. Charles didn't. He barely knew her. To him, she was just a nanny. I'm sorry I didn't ask you, Charles. I swear it just slipped out. I was just so moved by what she said and I felt so sorry for her. I just can't ask her to leave so quickly. After 12 years and my kids would be distraught. So would I. Then she should have told you what she was doing. This is outrageous. You should fire her, he said coldly. We love her, Maxine said gently. My children have grown up with her, and she loves them too. If it doesn't work out, we can always let her go. But with all these changes for my kids, our getting married, that and them getting used to you, Charles, I don't want her to go. And what am I supposed to do now? Live with a crack baby? <gasps> Change diapers? This isn't fair. Oh my god. Dump his ass. <laughs> Dump his ass. Exactly. Um, and then it just goes on with him calling this baby a crack baby for like three more paragraphs. Um, and then it ends with, uh, you don't have to do this, Max. She said, a looking apologetic. Oh, was that Charles? Zelda asked her looking anxious when Maxine walked back into the kitchen with a grim look. You don't have to do this, Max. She said, looking apologetic. I can just go. No, you can't. Maxine said, putting an arm around her. We love you. We're going to try and make this work. I just hope you get a good baby here and a healthy one. That's all that matters now. Charles will adjust. We all will. This is just a little new for him right now, she said. And then she started to laugh. What could possibly happen next? A crack baby in 2008. Renee. Julie. Oh, my God. My book was 1998. It was a decade before yours. And the most problematic thing in it was like a casual, like the, the, the stephanie was like you know he he felt like really weird like when he told me about how his uncle molested him in high school you know and it just goes on like that was the most problematic thing and yeah it's bad but um this is worse she says worse <laughs> right 2008 is too late exactly like we were not deep in the depths of maury povich like you are not the father nonsense like this was mm-hmm. 2000 and fucking eight. I can yeah. say as somebody who was having a designer baby in 2005 and was in the adoption scene, mm-hmm. um, they're very high demand. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, we've had this conversation on multiple occasions where people yeah. like anti-choicers talk about 
just put your baby up for adoption. And it's like super easy for you and I to say this as like blonde, able-bodied white women who, Mm -hmm. you know, in your case literally had a blonde um, blue-eyed baby in my case probably would have. So yeah, real easy to tell people who look like us, just put your kid up for adoption. But if you have addictions, um, if you're disabled, if you're of color, if you're intersex, like all of these things are not going to, like it's gross. It's so fucking gross. And like the only redeeming quality of that exchange is that they kind of like, they're kind of making Charles look like an asshole. Like Maxine should have very clearly called him the fuck out and also checked her own. You could wait for a less risky baby, which like you could be two smoking hot white people that are like literal triathletes and still have a disabled baby. So like fucking check yourselves people. Mm-hmm. anyways just threw me for a goddamn loop honestly yeah. because it came out of nowhere and then there's this lengthy exchange about the nanny that then added nothing to the plot other than mm-hmm. extreme classism and a twinge of anti-choiceness and also they... odd yeah sorry, sorry go ahead. i was just gonna say also odd considering her son d- died of addiction that i'm like why are you like judging people like it just a yeah. wasn't good uh yeah just like hard hard now, now like. did we know that her fiance was a piece of trash before this scene well that's the thing that many people on goodreads commented on and i don't disagree so he starts off as a prick and really short and cranky with her. And then he explains himself that he was just really worried about his patient. So you're like, oh, okay. And then he's just generally pleasant and like a bit annoyed with her, like a bit jealous of her old, of her relationship with her ex, but like nothing that intense. And then all of a sudden near the end, it's clear that she's trying to wrap it up. So she's like, okay, let's just make him look like a piece of shit. And like, let's just do this. So it makes sense that she would leave him and be with Blake, but it Danielle, doesn't fit don't need to rush anything. No, girl, take your sweet ass time. You don't have to crank out four books a year if you don't want to. Four hardcovers a year. <laughs> like, unfucking believable. Like, I can't. This, and of course, that's why she's making so much money. Like, who's buying brand new Danielle Steele's at 30 bucks a pop hardcover? I don't know, but it's happening. These women are out there, and then they give them to Value Village, and we come and we pick up their crumbs because that's what we do. <laughs> we get the sloppy seconds, and you know what? We're not complaining. No, we're not. So, well, in 2018, if we want to, if we want to go back and read something 10 years later, she wrote in his father's footsteps and Beauchamp. <laughs> okay. So maybe we just need to come back and read something from from then to see if maybe she it took oh. another ten years for her to be a little bit better. Maybe she got a bit woke. Maybe she maybe. got a bit woke. We should definitely look into her yeah. latest and even if you know if she's written anything kind of post me too, that would be interesting. Um yeah. yeah. Oh, she also wrote um Ancient Heroes, Fall from Grace, The Cast, The Good Fight, and yeah, those are the, she wrote more than four that year. Holy shit. Yeah. I mean, I can't, I gotta respect it. Even just the amount of work, like even if you're writing a super formulaic book or, you know, you're writing, it's still work. Like you still gotta do, you know, ass on chair. Like when I was in grad school and when I was writing my book and, you know, I was asking other writers and people like for advice and they're like, yeah, the best advice is ass on chair. Like AOC is the only way you can write a book. You gotta just do the thing. So, I mean, are we talking Pulitzer Prize winning? Fucking no. 
but it's still a lot of work. So kudos to you, Danielle Steele. <laughs> but I could do without your classist nonsense. <laughs> yeah. Now, Renee, yeah. Oh, speaking Jim. of class, mm-hmm. what mm-hmm. are we doing next week, buddy? We're getting hot for teacher. it's back to school season bitches so we're gonna Mm -hmm. read books about thirsty teachers people thirsty for their teacher i mean the sky's the limit and where that could go um i'm concerned there's going to be a significant amount of shifters (laughs) 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 which i will resist with uh i will be very stringent and making sure that does not end up um in my life but yeah mm-hmm. hot for teacher join us next week in the interim please go follow us on social media so you can see not only the cover but the back photo yeah. to this week's photo so you can see the clone of danielle Steele. <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> i mean she looks like a good time <laughs> well now that we know that they're doing like that he's basically a sex robot i'm like okay get it danielle get yeah. it yeah yeah you know what and he he knew how to cry. Yes, there was a problem with his wiring. You got to respect a man who knows that it's okay to cry. 100%. I respect vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Um, just before we wrap up here, Julie, I need to tell you about one of the four nonfiction books that Danielle Steele has written. One being about the story of the loss of her son. Oh, okay. Yeah. After that, she wrote a book called A Gift of Hope, Helping the Homeless. Oh. And yeah. It says, for 11 years, Danielle Steele took to the streets with a small team to help the homeless of San Francisco. She worked anonymously, visiting, quote, cribs of the city's most vulnerable citizens under cover of darkness, distributing food, clothing, bedding, tools, and toiletries. She sought no publicity for her efforts and remained anonymous throughout. Now she's speaking to bring attention to their plight. (laughs) Yeah, it is um, candid and inspirational. So, well, um, cool that you did it under the cloak of darkness and anonymity, but then you kind of and then wrote a book about it. <laughs> wrote a book about it. <laughs> and she also has a book called Pure Joy, and it's about dogs. Oh, she does love her dogs. I think she got a lot of bitches too. Like, I think she's, I mean, she's got a house with 55 rooms, so she yeah. got room for pups. Oh, yeah. I actually have a book I found at the thrift store, and it's like the unauthorized biography of Danielle Steele, but it's so tabloidy. Oh, I love it. And I was reading some of it, and it was like reading like, um, like, I don't know, like a made-for-TV reenactment (laughs) of like the rich and the famous. It was so good. I love that. Yeah, this was fun. So I can't wait till we do some other authors. We'll be doing some of those in the future. Absolutely. We're going to be hitting up some classics. So stick Mm -hmm. around for that. But yeah, next week is officially September, dude. It's fucking September. My kids are back at school. I'm back at school. I had to take another class. I had to, despite my best efforts, I have to take fucking anthro. Kill me, please. Um, but that's okay because school is a privilege I never thought I would get and I'm very happy to be there awesome that's a beautiful way to say it and I'm just as a former hardcore teacher's pet really excited to read (laughs) Haunt for Teacher books I hope you find a teacher's pet book where teachers are petting or being pet like 
Oh, you know, there's going to be some furry type pup play. Oh, yeah, 100%. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. If it's not shifters, it's going to be pets. I bet money on it right now, but we'll see what happens. And you'll have to tune I, in next week to join us. Yeah, and I, I hate to spoil it, but we are doing NASCAR afterwards. And if I don't find a <laughs> shifter NASCAR book, I'm going to be disappointed. Yeah, we are pulling out some fucking gems uh, this <laughs> fall. So you are not going to want to miss a single episode. I assure you of that. And as always, follow us on Instagram and Twitter so that you can follow along to our bizarro commentary. But also see the covers. You never want to miss them, I promise you. You never want to miss it. My angel, mm-hmm. will you sing us out? I absolutely will. Ravage love. Ravage love. Bye. Bye. Artwork for the podcast was created by Karen McKnight. Special thanks to Press Start to Join for production assistance. For gaming and tech news, search Press Start to Join or on social media at PS, the number two, J Show. Connect with us online at Ravage Love on Instagram and by email at ravagelove.podcast at gmail.com. Mm-hmm.